Hey everybody, this is Nevin Adams, Chief Content Officer of the American Retirement Association here with the latest edition of the Nevin and Fred Best and Fresh podcast series, which of course means that I'm joined here today by my my good friend and partner in fiduciary non-crime, Fred Reich. Hey Fred, how are we doing? Nevin, we're good. And uh, by the way, it was good to see you at the Napa conference in Las Vegas. Nice to visit a little bit. Great conference. Thousand people, I think. Things are good here. The, you know, life goes on. We're going to get a lot of developments, I think, from Congress and the Department of Labor over the next few months. So uh, we'll have that shiny new coin to keep us excited and energized about what's going on in our world. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And yes, I mean, we had, I think, 13, 1400 people at Summit. It was really nice to be back, back in person. And it was great to not only see you and have a chance to give you a good old fashioned hug and a handshake, but, uh, but to have you on one of our panels there. So it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun. We're looking forward to the next one. That will be April 3rd through the 5th in Tampa, Florida. So hopefully everybody's got that marked down on their calendars and we'll have more about that in the weeks ahead. That said, um, and we've, we've getting some nice pickup on the podcast or views, the listens or whatever, continue to climb. Again, remind everybody you can check us out either on Spotify or um, Apple's podcast. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get to it. So you definitely want to put it on your regular dial up. But um, but one of the other places that we've had connection from people is on Twitter, because yes, in fact, we do have our own Twitter account in addition to our own individual Twitter accounts. And uh, and there was a comment that came up to something you put up recently, Fred, from uh, an individual who basically, uh, on the one hand, very complimentary about the webcast, but also saying, you know, geez, based on the kinds of things you all are talking about, um, sooner or later, nobody's going to want to actually be a planned fiduciary. And uh, and so that was kind of an interesting little twist on things. Um, and I think, as you told her, what we're trying to do is help people um, who are in that role or perhaps choose to be in that role to do a good job, to basically to stay out of trouble. And, um, and so that's what we're trying to do here. Hopefully it, it works that way. We thought we would take a little different take today and, and talk a little bit about some of the uh, missteps, if you will, that plan fiduciaries, plan committees sometimes make as a way not only to highlight the problems, the potential problems, but also as a way to, again, try to highlight some of the best practices and the, the things that people can and should do um, as a way to sort of stay out of trouble and to feel really good about the important role they're playing in, in dealing with these plans. So um, before we get started with that, Fred, any, any kind of tee-up comments? Yeah, I... Uh... I used to like to t joke that uh, nobody was born wanting to be a fiduciary, um, which is consistent with a comment we got on Twitter. Uh, but it, it, it is a hard job uh, on, in two regards. One is just understanding what a fiduciary is and the concept of uh, putting somebody's interest ahead of your own. Uh, and number two is, is just all the little, all the decisions you have to make, knowing what they are, but but I know where we're going with this program, uh, Nevin, because we planned it. But having the arrangements set up properly helps a lot. Having an advisor who is experienced in four hundred one k plans, because most people at companies are not, and and therefore can be a guide in effect uh, for both what a fiduciary is and what the structure is. So I think getting the right structure in place, getting an advisor to be the guide, those are the big steps. 
Oh, no, completely agree. And to your point earlier, and we heard this from one of our, uh, we had a plan sponsor panel at Summit, and, you know, you talk to people in this industry all the time, very few of us started out saying, hey, I'd like to go work with retirement plans. And certainly the, the people who end up being plan sponsors, it's very much kind of a sidecar issue to their day jobs, if you will. I mean, mostly they're HR professionals, they're dealing with a broad range of benefits um, and, and issues and personnel issues and things like that. And the retirement plan, um, unfortunately, despite some of the personal liability and things like that, ends up being just kind of part of the other things that they do. And so, you know, I've always had a great deal of respect for the people who find themselves in that role, uh, a lot of times without any sort of training background or even warning. Um, and, and so to your point, if you don't know what you're doing with this stuff, it's always good to get somebody to sort of help you along, somebody who, who knows those ropes and can help guide you. And we'll we'll talk some more about that later. But um, but having said that, um, let's start off with, with some of these key missteps, if you will, as a, as a way to talk about it. The first one on my list is not having a plan or a plan committee in the first place. Um, and I say that because in a lot of situations, and particularly among smaller employers, that may just seem like a um, you know a distraction or something you know that creates an additional uh, job to do and to keep up with and trying to figure out who's uh, who's going to be part of it. But you know the reality is, you know, RISA only requires that what's called the named fiduciary. That's you know there has to be one of those. It's named in the plan document itself that those make decisions regarding the plan that are in the best interest of plan participants and beneficiaries, and that those be the type of decisions that a quote prudent expert would make about such matters. Um, ERISA doesn't require that you make those decisions by yourself. In fact, it requires that if you don't have the requisite level of expertise, and as I think we've said on a prior podcast, the, the courts have said it's the highest duty known to, uh, to law. Um, if you lack that expertise, you are expected to enlist the support of people who do have that. And a lot of that's going to come from the composition of a good committee. That means putting putting together a group of people who can share valued perspectives and who can make you help you make those prudent, reasonable decisions, including again the advice of, of experts on the field who are particularly on let's say things like investments or plan design can help you be aware of what the best practices are, what the trends in the industry are, um, including as we've talked about in prior podcasts, trends in litigation, things that you uh, that you might want to be aware of. Um, that said, having a committee just for committee's sake is uh, is a problem. Um, committees can be too big. You know, there's this inverse relationship, if you will, sometimes between the number of individuals on a committee and their ability to actually make a decision. Uh, so you want to be careful and thoughtful when you put together your committee that you do, in fact, have good people and that you have the right people and that, that they are aware of the importance of the decisions they make. What do you think, Fred? Uh, no, Nevin, I, I agree. You know, when I look at this from a, uh, from a legal perspective, everybody has heard process, 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 process. You have to have a prudent process. But um, it's a lot easier to have it if you have a structure for having a prudent process. And just to mention two structural issues about that, one would be to have uh, a committee, an established committee, as you point out, with the right people. Uh, and uh, let's say have quarterly meetings. I mean, that is evidence of a prudent process that will support uh, from a court's perspective or the DOL's perspective, 
the argument that this committee did engage in prudent processes because they had meetings. Uh, but then the second part is those meetings have to have agendas or they, they, you should have material to discuss. And viewed from a pure legal perspective, uh, I think if the committee has reports from a advisor, reports from their record keeper, They've, they've, they've had those reports, they've asked questions about them, they've then put them in the file, that that's great process evidence. So I, I, I encourage my clients to have committees and I encourage them to have some people from finance and some people from uh, HR. Uh, I just think when you, when you have a group of people with a task and they're all going to be getting together to talk about it, they take it more seriously or at least maybe more thoughtfully. If it's just one person making the decisions, uh, sometimes it's too easy to be an entrepreneur and just make risk-based decisions, which is not a good way to run a planned committee. There, there you don't want to be saying, yeah, sure, that looks okay to me. You want to, you want to study it and have a discussion back and forth. So I agree that the starting point is to have a planned committee and then, and then to have people who will, uh, take the job seriously. There was a case a few years ago, the NYU case, where under examination, one of the committee members said, I didn't think I was a fiduciary. I just called the meetings and then I went to the meetings and then I kept all the files, but I wasn't a fiduciary. But every member of the plan committee is a fiduciary. That poor woman just did not know that she was. And while NYU ultimately won the case, uh, Boy, with testimony like that in the file, there had to be a, at least some feeling that they might lose the case. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a job where people need to at least have some idea of what they're doing, but they need to be guided through it the way we were talking a minute ago. They need to have uh, someone explain what their roles and responsibilities are. It's not just to go to meetings. Well, what would those roles and responsibilities look like? I mean, how, if you're, you know, sort of brought onto the committee kind of thing, I mean, how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do? How am I going to do that correctly? I mean, how, how would you position that? How do people find out what those roles and responsibilities are? I would, uh, I mean, either working with an ERISA attorney or an investment advisor or both, uh, because there's no way inside most companies that they have access to information on that. Now, with larger companies, maybe the committee members belong to different uh, associations and, and receive some external education. But when you get to mid-sized and smaller plans, um, they just don't have access to that. So they've got to get it from outside people, people outside the company. And and that could be from, from an investment advisor or a lawyer. One thing that I'm a great advocate for uh, is... Well, two things, actually. One is basic fiduciary training. What do, what do I mean about basic? I mean, the opposite of basic is the most recent court decision said such and such. That's not what I mean by basic. By basic, I mean you are a fiduciary. <laughs> You're on the committee now and you are a fiduciary. And a fiduciary means you have to put the interest of the participants first. Not, not the company, not your interests, not the kind of investments you like not even the plan, in a manner of speaking, the participants, uh, and, and really drive home what a fiduciary is. Uh, in that regard, Nevin, I think part of the education would be that uh, technically on a committee, you're two kinds of fiduciaries. Uh, if you go to the regulation defining fiduciary advice, you're a 321A1 fiduciary, meaning you manage the plan with discretion, and you're a 321A3 fiduciary, 
meaning that you administer the plan. So one is the plan assets, more or less. The other is the plan decisions. Uh, like under 321A3, and I'm just throwing these numbers around. It's really a, a management fiduciary and an operational or administrative fiduciary. But for example, the selection and monitoring of the investment advisor, the selection and monitoring of the record keeper, those are administrative functions, making sure they're not overpaid, making sure you're getting good services. Uh, so there are two sets of duties, that, and they need to be educated on their basic duties. That's, that's number one, and that's where an ERISA attorney or an advisor or both ought to do it. The other thing I really like to see is to use the investment policy statement as a training tool. Whenever you have turnover, for example, on a committee, uh, that first meeting should be to walk through the investment policy statement with the new committee member, not as a... Uh, not as, hey, here are a bunch of rules, but but more, this is your job uh, is to administer this. Here's why these policies are in here. Uh, here's what a share class is. Here's why you need to select uh, reasonably priced or less expensive investments, but really basic blocking and tackling. Uh, so, but the investment, if you have a fee and expense policy statement, that can be used as a training tool as well. But and, and the summary plan description, I think, with another document I would walk through a new committee member with and, and with some basic training. But yes, get them up to speed on what their job is. No, that's a great point. In fact, one of my, like, you know, the missteps that plan committees sometimes make is not having an investment policy statement in place. Um, now, it's interesting because, you know, here you are and you just kind of put it out as, you know, this this is an important training tool. This is something that, that you know, people should have in place as a, as a manner to guide them in terms of making those decisions. Um, the reality, of course, is that there's no actual legal requirement to have an investment policy statement. The weird thing to me always is there's no requirement to have that document, but there is a requirement that you act as though you did, in fact, have that document. And I, for one, have always found it easier to pretend, you know, to conduct myself, you know, as if I had the document, if I actually had the document in place. But uh, but again, and, and I've heard stories over the years from plan sponsors who basically say, I don't I don't have an investment policy in in statement because my lawyer told me not to. And the, the caveat is. The only thing worse than than not having an investment policy statement is having an investment policy statement and not following it, because that is, I think, what they call in among lawyers a smoking gun. Um, because you know, you come back later and you say, "Well, this is what you said you were going to do, and you didn't do it." And it is to your point; it is in then in writing. So clearly, if you're if you're going to have an investment policy statement, I agree with you, Fred. I think you really do need to have that as a as a guiding document, particularly you know, to reflect the kinds of decisions you want to be making, you know, in, in bad times or in, in critical times. Some of the things that have been going on over the last year and a half with COVID and things like that, you want to have something that, that you've been had a chance to put together to provide some guideposts and some, some uh, guardrails, if you will, in place before you're in the middle of a crisis and it's, it's hard, harder to make those decisions. You want to have that document that you put together in the, in the cold, clear light of day to guide you through those rough times. Um, but, it's, but it's an interesting thing that, again, not legally required, but sort of legally assumed. And as I said, I've always found it easier to actually do it if you have it in place than if you sort of pretend that you had it in place and didn't. I, you know, 
Yeah, a few thoughts on that. Uh, first, in addition to training new plan committee members and using the investment policy statement as a part of that training, um, I also recommend the plan committees go over it with the advisor once a year because it's it's I don't think it's reasonable to assume that people two or three years from now would remember what their investment policy statement is today. I just don't think that's reasonable. I think you have to keep it front of mind. I think the advisors should talk with the committee members about how the advisors' reports are coordinated with the investment policy statement and support the implementation of the investment policy statement. Having said that, uh, I agree that having an investment policy statement and not following it is a problem. But I think I've figured a workaround for that. Uh, when I draft investment policy statements, I put two provisions in there that aren't commonly found in investment policy statements. Number one is it says this investment policy statement is a set of guidelines only. They're here to assist the committee in making decisions. However, independent of these investment policy guidelines, uh, the committee is expected to, to use its discretion in the best interest of the participants, and they are not obligated to make decisions consistent with the IPS. And then at the end of the IPS, in the amendment provision, I put, you know, while the preferred method of amending this IPS is in writing, uh, it can in fact be amended by the committee taking actions that are different than its terms. So it permits like a verbal type amendment, but it doesn't even require a vote. It just says if the committee votes to do something different than what's in here, that's an amendment. Uh, so I, because I don't want people to trip where they're trying to do the right thing to trip over some technical mistake because of a, of a, of a, of a document, namely the investment policy statement. Uh, by the way, going back to one thing you said earlier, Nevin, I really agree with, um, you can't make decisions about investments without making investment policy decisions. Like, okay, we're going to uh, only select investments with uh, expense ratios below average. We're going to select the lowest cost share class, and we're going to do whatever. Those are all investment policy decisions. So when you when when the committee gets a report and it, and the report says here are the criteria we used to select these investments or to determine that they're prudent. All those criteria are investment policy decisions that the committee is making, perhaps without knowing they're making it. So why not reduce it to writing so everybody knows what they're doing, but then put in the kind of protective provisions that I talked about. So, yeah, I agree. They're making investment policy decisions left and right far better. They know that they're doing it and that they do it in a, a conscious, formal way. That's an interesting sort of uh, step over to another one of the missteps that that I've identified, and and that is a tendency that, that I've seen over time, uh, a reluctance to remove funds from the plan menu that let's say don't don't meet the criterion. You know, there's, you know, obviously you don't want to knee jerk this. You don't want to, there's a lot of disruption and a lot of communication requirements if all of a sudden you take a fund off the menu because that that's going to require communication. That's going to require sort of a redirection, a remapping or something like that to participants that have been invested in it. But obviously if, if you've gone through the process of you know prudently reviewing your investments, you've paid attention to your investment policy statement, and you decide that the, a certain fund no longer meets those standards, 
then you need to do something about it. And despite all of those impediments and things that that uh, that come along with the you know, the exercise of removing a fund, I think having a process that identifies a fund as not meeting the standards and then leaving it in the plan just just sort of leaves the fiduciary vulnerable to uh, to a suit later on that says, well, you knew this was a problem. It didn't meet even the standards that you set out. And, and therefore, if something bad happens as a result of the investment tanks or something like that, then, then find yourself in some kind of litigation or even a bad PR situation with a participant who simply finds themselves inadequately pre- prepared for retirement because they left money invested in a fund that, that was imprudent. What do you think? Uh, you know, I, I two other versions of that same thing, Nevin, are uh, one where an investment is put on a watch list. And like three years later, it's still on the watch list. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're who, we're who's, still watching. <laughs> yeah, who's watching? I mean, you know, watch list must mean somebody's investigating it. You know, what happened? Um, the other thing that happens is, oh, no, we'll just freeze it. And we'll let people that already have money in there stay in this really crappy fund. But if you don't have money in there, you won't be able to do something that doesn't make sense. You know, all of those are sort of wrapped up in the same package with the same bow around it. And and yes, once it's determined that, and the committee needs to make two determinations. One, it no longer beats the investment policy criteria. And number two, which might be why you put it on the watch list for three or six months, but maybe not any longer than that. Number two, uh, we need to investigate and see if this was just a blip. Uh, and, you know, it's really a good long-term manager and and every manager has up and down periods and, and it's really coming back. Or alternatively, whoops, there are a series of things that have happened with this investment manager that mean that it's, that, that give us a pretty strong indication it's not likely to recover. Uh, you know, the, the, that particular fund was not likely to perform well in the future. And, but yes, you make the first decision, it doesn't meet our criteria anymore. You make the second decision. Uh, we don't have, there's not enough reason to believe that uh, that it'll come back to justify retaining it. Uh, and then you got to get rid of it. I mean, you just have to replace it with something that is, uh, that you have a higher, that the committee members and the advisor have a higher degree of confidence in going forward. Because I can't tell you, you know, committee members look at things like today. Uh, how does it look today? But as a lawyer, uh, having worked in litigation some, you know, it's like three, four, five years down the line. You're looking backwards. Committees here today looking forwards. Down the line, you're looking backwards. To have a fund that was clearly underperforming, that clearly had troubles, uh, and then to have it stay in there for two or three years, I, I can't tell you how bad that looks from a litigation perspective. Awful. Just terrible. So anyway, that's you asked what I think. then. <laughs> I gave you more than enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's a great point. You know, and, and then kind of to, to wrap things up, and I think this goes back to, to something we were saying earlier. The other the other thing that I, I think is, is a bad thing, and we talk a little bit about kind of what does this actually mean, but but I think, you know, it's a problem if you're not – if you don't keep minutes – of those committee meetings. I mean, again, we've said it before and we've said it certainly in this webcast, um, you know, prudence is process, right? But I think you're the one that taught me that it's it's prudence is process, but only if you can prove it. 
and the proof of it it actually comes into the to the documentation a written record of what went on and and why those decisions were made and you know that's important not only because let's face it to your point five years down the road are you going to remember what you've talked about and, and the, the things that you considered when you made some of those decisions, particularly if there was any controversy around it at all. I mean, you know, your your you know, litigants are going to be looking at it with 2020 hindsight, but you had to make a decision at a point in time looking out at things that the best you knew and that kind of thing. And so the documentation around what that decision was, not only what it was, but why it was or the factors in it, or or even honestly, just just the notion that there was a discussion can be really important in terms of later on establishing that there was prudence. I've I've seen in, in most of the litigation, the courts seem to be very willing to appreciate the fact that the plan fiduciary is not expected to have 20-20 hindsight when they make those decisions, but, but they do want to see evidence of a process and a discussion. And so even if you want to sort of steer away from being, you know, specifically bulleting all the issues, I think even just the notion that, that you had a discussion and that there was a decision to, to take a certain action can be really helpful five years down the road when, you know, many of those committee members may not be around anymore or they haven't been on the committee in a while. Let's face it, people's, people's memories are not, uh, are not always what we'd like them to be. Yeah. What do you think? No, I agree. I mean, I've, I remember a case a few years ago where I was a percipient witness because I attended the board of directors meetings uh, and I was being examined on like who said what at a board of directors meeting six years ago. It's like, I mean, how do you remember something like that? It's, it's really hard. So I'm a great believer in a very clinical approach to minutes. The investment advisor delivered as a, a report. Uh, he, the investment advisor discussed the report, committee members asked questions, the, the uh, advisor responded, a robust discussion ensued upon motion duly made and seconded, the report was approved and all of the investments will be retained or such and such investment will be removed, whatever. But notice what I didn't say. I didn't say Mary said and Joe said, because if you say that in the minutes and a lawsuit comes up later on, they're going to get in deposition and at trial, Mary, and ask her all about what she said at that minute, why she did that, and Joe, why he did that. Why did you second that motion? What was there? And the truth is, it's extraordinarily difficult. So I tend to like a very clinical approach to minutes that, that doesn't set a bad stage for people in the future. I tend to like the documents reviewed by the committee as part of the minutes supporting literally state in the minutes which documents were provided and retain them in the due diligence file as well for that it can be record keeper reports, uh, advisor reports or whatever. Um, and then I tend to, you know, I want it to be true because it, it, it's good to have proof of the truth, but I, I, I would love it if it were true and if it were in the minutes it said, you know, the, uh, the record keeper was asked questions about I don't know, cybersecurity. Uh, the advisor was asked questions about this underperforming investment. Uh, uh, they responded to the questions and a, and a discussion among the committee members ensued. If all of that language is in the minutes, then, it, then it is, it, it's exactly what a prudent process is. That is a prudent process. Uh, but I don't think you need to go beyond that. And I, and I would... Uh, I would keep out the he said, she said part that I just as a lawyer view that as dangerous. No, that's a great point. Well, you know, hey, we've covered a lot of ground here. Let me see if I can kind of sum it up and then 
you make sure I've, I don't miss anything, Fred. Um, we've talked about, you know, some of the things that the missteps, if you will, that, that committees need to avoid. And, and the first and foremost, perhaps, is not to have a committee in the first place. Um, secondly, if you're going to you know, have a committee, and based on our conversation, you will, in fact, have a committee, you want to make sure that all the members of the committee, that they're, that they're good choices, that they are contributory to the expert review of the plan provisions and investments and things like that, um, the providers that are supporting the plan, that you know things are, are reasonable and the fees are reasonable for the services provided, that kind of thing. So you want to make sure you have a good committee, that it's well thought out and well tested, that it's not just people sort of like for political reasons to be sort of parked on the committee. Um, and you want to be always cognizant of the fact that you're expected to have an expert perspective on this and to make prudent decisions. And to the extent that you lack those, you are expected to bring on the help and expertise of people who do have that expertise to kind of help you make and, and guide those decisions. Um, we've also talked about the importance of documents like a summary plan description or the investment policy statement, specifically in terms of not only an education tool for the members who might come onto the committee, but as a, a refresher, a reminder, um, a guidepost, if you will, later on to kind of what decisions were made and why. And those, of course, decisions being reflected and documented in minutes of the meeting and the importance of having those minutes available um, with certainly evidence of the discussions that were there. But again, perhaps you want to be careful about steering into the minutia, the, the he said, she said kind of thing that Fred was talking about, because not only can that be problematic down the road, I, trust me, it'll make, it'll make making the minutes a lot easier if you're not being reduced to that level of detail. What you, what you want is to remember what was decided and why it was decided as opposed to kind of like the discussion that went on to, to go into that. And then um, obviously in, in kind of part and parcel with that is, is to have that documentation in writing um, because again, five years down the road, you're not going to remember some of the things that you think you would never ever forget, but, um, but life, life intrudes and uh, sometimes makes those details a little fuzzy. And so it's always helpful to have that documentation available. Ultimately, again, you not only want to have that prudent process in place and you want your committee to support that prudent process in place, you, you need to be able to, to establish some kind of proof that it in fact happened. Writing's just a darn good way to do it. Well, one quick comment, just make sure everybody on the committee knows that they're a fiduciary, that they really truly are acting as a fiduciary. That means they're acting and the, they need to make decisions that are in the best interest of the participant. If, if an advisor, an advisor can be a tremendous help to plan committees if, if someone doesn't seem to recognize that or realize that and educating them. Also, if there are members of the committee that are quiet at meetings and don't seem to be participating, encourage them. Make sure they understand. Make sure they're actually participating in the decision because they're all co-fiduciaries and their involvement is, is really important to making good decisions. Don't let somebody, because they feel like these issues are too complicated, sort of set back and, and be a little bit overwhelmed by the, by the task of being on a committee. So that's the last thought, Nevin. And a brilliant thought it is. And uh, thank, thank you for like wrapping it up so in a nice, neat bow. Um, well, thank you again, everybody, for listening. Please spread the word around. Uh, like us, friend us, tell your friends about us. Um, and look forward to seeing you all in the near future. 
Have a great week.